Hi, ParCast listeners. It's Vanessa with some incredible news. You can purchase your copy of our book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, available now at parcast.com slash cults. Cults is an expanded look at the people who led and followed the most radical groups in history, with an unflinching exploration into what happens when the most vulnerable recesses of the mind are twisted into the lowest forms of malevolence. Details not featured on our podcasts. We're so proud to bring you this fantastic compilation of stories, and we're forever grateful for your support. Without you, none of this would be possible, so thank you. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults to order today. Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and sexual assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. After stopping by the former home of the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas, we follow a series of state highways toward Interstate 20. We're heading through New Mexico, with our sights set on Arizona. The land is wide open, dotted with sprawling ranches and government armory test ranges. Layers of ancient red rock tower over the golden desert. Just past Grand Canyon National Park, we'll take a tiny county road toward our next stop, Colorado City, Arizona. Not many people come to this place, a mile away from the Arizona-Utah border, and that's the point. The inhabitants of Colorado City and its sister town of Hilldale, Utah, actually prefer for strangers to stay out. Even amid the beauty of the landscape, there are eerie hints of secrecy and exclusion. Large, hand-painted signs warn against trespassing. High, solid fences border much of the town. Privacy is vital. Because within these walls, there are several hundred members of a polygamous church. Their stories reveal a dark history of fraud and sexual abuse, all at the behest of Warren Jeffs, who called himself a prophet. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is a special series presented by Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, its leader, and its followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This summer, Cults is hitting the road. We're traveling from coast to coast to investigate the people and places that host the most notorious religious groups in the United States. So put on your shades, roll down the window, and kick up your feet as the rubber meets the road. This week, our stop is Colorado City, Arizona one of the primary centers of the Fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints, or FLDS. This church, once led by Rulin and Warren Jeffs, was at the center of a decades-long investigation into fraud and sexual assault. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Before the border towns of Hilldale and Colorado City existed, the area was known as Short Creek. And the creek actually exists. It runs through a wide valley tucked between colorful desert mesas. This valley oasis was a welcome break from the desert sand and wind. It proved a comfortable place to set up a homestead, which is likely why the original Mormon settlers stopped here. Back then, the territory of Utah was on the verge of becoming a state, However, the federal government had a problem. Many in Utah's population were Mormon, but the government wouldn't tolerate the practice of polygamy, wherein one man had several wives. So to bring Utah into the United States, the leaders of the Church of Latter-day Saints agreed to renounce the practice. But not all Mormons accepted the decree. Some fundamentalists saw polygamy as the will of God. They believed marriage was holy and that more marriages saved more souls. They refused to abandon their beliefs, and by the 1930s, the inter-church division became untenable. The polygamists decided they needed to find a new place to live. So, a splinter group left the area around Salt Lake City and made their way over 300 miles south to Short Creek. They set up a new community and took on a fresh name the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or FLDS. In their new homeland, they hoped they wouldn't be bothered by church leadership or the government. They were happy out on their own, living in small groups of wooden cabins clustered around a beautiful whitewashed church. They built windmills, hand-pumped wells, and chicken coops. The several hundred settlers had all they needed. To them, Short Creek seemed like heaven on earth at least temporarily. While moving to the isolated valley made it difficult for authorities to monitor the FLDS, it wasn't impossible. Thanks to new, harsher laws against the practice, church members had to follow polygamy in secret. They now called it plural marriage. For years, few outsiders knew for certain how many wives each FLDS man had, or who was married to whom. Most alarming was the fact that nobody knew how old the girls were when they married. But if any family came under scrutiny from the law, they simply had to walk a mile to cross the nearby state border. This close proximity was one of the most attractive features of Short Creek, since it made it easy to move between jurisdictions and avoid legal trouble. Still, by the 1950s, two decades after their move, there were widespread rumors about the polygamists at Short Creek. Citizens of the surrounding town strongly disliked the practice of polygamy and were concerned for the welfare of the youngest FLDS members especially girls. So in July 1953, the Arizona State Police decided to uncover the truth. In the early hours of July 26, 1953, the police surrounded Short Creek. They fired up their spotlights and moved in on foot. 
but they found the community practically abandoned. Most houses were empty, while others had groups of women and children huddled in prayer. The FLDS had been tipped off about the raid, and they saw an opportunity to portray the church as an upstanding community, unfairly persecuted by the law. The town's male citizens dutifully gathered at the church, where the police found them waiting patiently. The FLDS men were dressed in their finest suits when they were arrested. All told, 36 men, 86 women, and 263 children were taken into custody as the sun rose. Journalists and photographers, who were also tipped off to the raid, snapped pictures of the entire event. The images and stories depicted screaming children seized from their sobbing mother's arms. The backlash was immediate. The same people who'd been concerned about polygamy were now shocked by the sudden raid. They saw it as a tyrannical move made by the government against private individuals. The public outcry at the violent separation of families even cost Arizona's governor his seat in the next election. It was a public relations victory for the FLDS. Charges were dropped, and the families soon returned to their homes. However, to avoid any future connection with the raid, the church decided to leave the Short Creek name behind. Instead, they founded two new towns in the same area, Hilldale and Colorado City. It seemed like a fresh start for everyone. But for one church family, it was literally a new beginning. In December 1955, a mid-level member of the FLDS leadership, High Priest Apostle Rulin Jeffs, welcomed his son Warren into the world. Warren was just one of 45-year-old Rulin's approximately 60 children. Nobody knew it at the time, but while Short Creek had defined the church's past, Warren Jeffs would define its future. For all their importance to the FLDS, though, the Jeffs family didn't even live in Hilldale or Colorado City. Rulin and his brood lived 300 miles to the north in Salt Lake City. Rulin helped run church affairs from a distance, though he often traveled to the sister cities for meetings and important ceremonies. Back at home, Rulin also ran a successful accounting business, and young Warren was raised in a comfortable, middle-class lifestyle. However, he was isolated from secular society and homeschooled with other FLDS kids, many of whom were his siblings. As he grew older, Warren became his father's favorite son. Rulin often pulled Warren out of his schooling to accompany him to Colorado City for church business. It was clear Rulin was grooming Warren to rise in the church with him. And by the early 1980s, Rulin was definitely ascending to the top ranks of the FLDS. He even retired from accounting in 1984 to focus on church leadership full-time. From there, his power grew exponentially. When the head of the church passed away two years later, Rulin took over his position as prophet. Unlike other Mormon leadership roles, the FLDS saw the prophet as God's literal instrument on earth a holy man with the singular power to perform marriages, arrange families, and modify church doctrines. Using the alleged divine influence behind his position, Rulin immediately dissolved the rest of the church's leadership council. He was now the de facto dictator of the FLDS, and 30-year-old Warren was right by his side, watching and learning. Following his rise to profit, 88-year-old Rulin and his family moved to Hilldale in 1998. After years leading from a distance, the Jeffs were finally a part of the border community, and they made sure they had a hand in everything. By the turn of the millennium, over 5,000 members of the FLDS lived and worked in Hilldale and Colorado City. 
The towns were bustling with home construction and community celebrations like parades, dances, and children's theater shows. Kids played in the streets outside their wood frame houses. All were dressed in humble FLDS clothing, with long pastel-colored dresses for the girls and simple trousers and buttoned shirts for the boys. As the towns grew, homeschooling became unsustainable due to the large number of children per family. So some of the kids went to nearby public schools. Their parents also had to look outside the busy towns for work, and the church required a 10% tithe of their wages. On top of this, Rulin encouraged further donations, sometimes even in the realm of thousands of dollars. Community labor generated enormous income for the FLDS, and these funds were singularly controlled by the Jeffs family. Relying on his decades of accounting experience, Rulin wanted to make sure the church's wealth was protected. To that end, he founded the United Effort Plan, a communal property trust run by the church. The FLDS could take out loans, own land and buildings, and undertake construction projects, all without paying taxes. Before long, almost all property in the towns was owned by the trust, including every member's house. As one FLDS member put it, everything was God's and the trust's. By 2002, 92-year-old Rulin Jeffs had solidified his church's hold over the towns and their inhabitants. This allowed them to continue openly practicing polygamy, largely without interference. Rulin himself was rumored to have as many as 75 wives. But not long after solidifying his hold on the region, the aging prophet died on September 8, 2002. While the FLDS mourned Rulin, his heir was already apparent. 46-year-old Warren Jeffs was to become the new prophet. And Warren had big plans for his church. While his father had been content to build up Colorado City and Hilldale, Warren wanted more. To him, the towns and their residents were still too open to the sinful world. So he decided to lock them down. Coming up, Warren Jeffs and the FLDS retreat further behind their walls. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. I'm so excited to tell you that our first book is on sale now. This is such a big moment for the whole ParCast family, and we can't wait for you to read it. It's called Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can purchase it today by visiting parcast.com cults. This is a passion project years in the making and only made possible by you. With your support, we've been able to get back to our storytelling roots. This time with a wealth of research and insights under our belt and intimate details not covered on our podcast before. Shame, exploitation, power. Cults unfolds the many motives behind groups like Nexium, Heaven's Gate, The People's Temple, and more, revealing eye-opening details which will surprise even the most devoted true crime fan. Visit parcast.com cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. That's parcast.com cults. And on behalf of everyone here at ParCast, thank you for joining us on this journey. We hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 2002, FLDS church leader Rulin Jeffs died, and his 46-year-old son, Warren, rose to take his place. As the prophet, Warren inherited control of the United Effort Plan. This communal trust held most of the property in the cities of Hilldale and Colorado City, near the Utah-Arizona border. Warren now had the keys to the kingdom, and he wanted to make sure he locked out strangers. And the law. The move wasn't a surprise since Warren was openly practicing polygamy, which was still illegal. Within days of his father's death, he'd married all but two of Rulin's many wives. The new unions were happily celebrated in the community. After all, FLDS members believed that a man needed multiple wives to reach heaven and save his family's souls. Not only that, but because nearly every resident had been raised in polygamist families, nobody questioned Warren's actions. It was normal for a man to marry within the same family, usually at Warren's behest. For example, former FLDS member Shirley Draper said, I got the call that the prophet was going to place me. I did not know who I was going to marry, and we were married at 5 o'clock that night. It wasn't like I was horrified at the thought. In Shirley's case, her younger sister also married her husband. The two sisters shared the same home. And once children were born, the same mothering duties. Yet they considered themselves blessed to have each other in the same house, caring for each other. But assigning marriages also allowed Warren to use polygamy to his advantage. For example, he told young women, you ladies belong to the prophet. Using his tyrannical control over their lives, he took wives from men he wanted to punish and moved them to the men he wanted to reward. Sometimes Warren even removed children from their parents to shame them, then relocated the kids to other families. And that wasn't the only homewrecking Warren was involved in. Since his communities were isolated from the outside world, there was a population problem. There simply weren't enough women for each man to marry multiple wives. Rather than risk his followers questioning polygamy, Warren took a different approach. He decided to eliminate some of the men. Warren found reasons to punish teenage boys of marrying age, sometimes just for watching TV. When it came to grown men he disliked, he simply had to create some holy infraction to justify their removal. These men and boys were excommunicated from the church, which meant banishment from Hilldale and Colorado City. For the teenagers, Warren gave their families a choice. They could either kick out their rebellious boy or the whole family would be booted from the church. This terrible dilemma led to nearly a thousand young men being forced out of town from the early to mid-2000s. Afterward, the boys had to strike out on their own for the surrounding region, even though the nearest major town was about 25 miles away. Their lack of social skills and street knowledge was obvious, which left many of them struggling to survive. Remember, most were still teenagers. They needed to be legally emancipated from their parents in order to receive state identification and birth certificates, or even learn to drive. But Warren made sure that there was no contact between the kids and their families to allow for emancipation. Many of the teens were left unhoused. Some turned to sex work, while others were caught up in painful addictions. 
To those left behind in the FLDS towns, though, Warren's terrifying tactic worked. Many families, even some who'd watched their children be forced out, claimed they'd felt safer once the so-called doubters were gone. Warren encouraged their fears using a philosophy he called keeping sweet. It ensured his power remained unchallenged by pressuring his believers to keep themselves in line. The premise was simple. Anytime an FLDS member did something Warren considered out of line, he told them to keep sweet. He said, keeping sweet is an exertion to remain clean and pure. And if you're not keeping sweet, then you're not pure. But the definition of pure was completely up to the prophet. And as he'd clearly demonstrated with the rash of excommunications, the impure were punished. And Warren wasn't just applying his keep sweet philosophy to people. He wanted everything in his towns to be pure. He modified church doctrines to be more strict about language, behavior, and customs. He prohibited FLDS members from traveling outside the towns without his permission, except to work. He eliminated any unsupervised interaction with secular life, including pulling all FLDS kids out of public schools. He tried to control all outside influences, from clothing choices and hairstyles to media and news. He even edited children's books, adding long sleeves onto dresses in the pictures to reflect FLDS attire. After a while, he decided there were too many to edit, so he banned the books altogether, along with music, dancing, and television. Warren's control was absolute, and if all of these methods failed to keep his people in line, he had one final powerful weapon, history. Sometimes all Warren had to do to keep his followers in line was remind them of the 1953 raid. He portrayed it as a tactic to destroy FLDS families, even when he did the very same thing with his familial arrangements and excommunications. He also portrayed himself as the final protector of Hilldale and Colorado City. He claimed he was the only one standing between the FLDS and the vicious federal government. And thanks to the old newspapers, he had the pictures to prove it. By 2005, Warren Jeffs had unilateral control of everything and everyone in Hilldale and Colorado City. But his tyrannical isolation was attracting attention. Just like in the 1950s, there were rampant rumors in the surrounding areas about criminal activities in the polygamous towns. The county sheriff received frequent calls concerning possible abuse. And thanks to Warren's excommunications, there were now plenty of former FLDS members to testify to his horrific actions. The stories were stomach-turning. Warren married teenage girls to men who were decades older than them. They said he even created a group called Seed Bearers. The FLDS men in the group, and only those men, were allowed to reproduce. One female church member later described the ritual in terrible detail in court. She said, quote, A seed bearer is an elect man of a worthy bloodline chosen to impregnate the FLDS woman. It is the husband's responsibility to hold the hands of their wives while the seed bearer spreads his seed. In layman terms, the husband is required to sit in the room while the chosen seed-bearer, or a couple of them, rape his wife or wives. Like a scene out of Margaret Atwood's dystopian Handmaid's Tale, Warren Jeffs developed a program of systematic sexual assault, all in the name of faith. When these horrific reports appeared in 2004 and 2005, state authorities opened investigations into the church. 
Riding the wave of public scrutiny, former and excommunicated members opened civil lawsuits against the FLDS. Many claimed they were victims of rampant abuse and fraud, while others simply wanted to reclaim their homes. The heat was rising in the twin desert towns of Hilldale and Colorado City. More police patrols were driving through town, watching for signs of trouble. Former members frequently returned to their old homes, stirring up resentment and fear of reprisals from Warren. Meanwhile, the prophet could see the writing on the wall. The area wasn't secure anymore. He couldn't ensure the isolation he needed to keep his fraud and abuse hidden. So in August 2003, Warren decided to go even farther into the desert. Using the significant wealth of his FLDS trust fund, Warren purchased a wide tract of land in West Texas. He called it Yearning for Zion, or YFZ. The 1,700-acre ranch was the most isolated compound the FLDS had ever founded, and Warren thought it was perfect. The nearest town was called El Dorado. It seemed Warren had found another place to build heaven on earth. From there, 47-year-old Warren Jeffs fueled his vision for the FLDS, a more radical, isolated lifestyle than ever before. He moved his huge family first, then invited powerful members of the church to join him at YFZ. Using over $3 million of the trust, Warren built an enormous temple, a school, and a 29,000-square-foot home for himself and his many wives. The house was a key hiding place for his criminal activities, which now included sexual assault against minors. Several of his wives were underage, including some as young as 12 years old. Many had already given birth or were pregnant with his children. By May of 2005, while Warren was continuing his crimes in Texas, authorities back in Arizona and Utah finally gathered enough evidence to make their move. Former FLDS members had told them that apart from fear, money was Warren's primary source of power. So the authorities went after the trust fund first. From there, the dominoes started falling. A Utah court froze the assets of the United Effort Plan, which was now worth over $100 million. They also stripped the trust of its religious exemption, which meant the church became fully liable for taxes and potential audits. A month later, an Arizona judge set forth an indictment against Warren Jeffs. He was accused of arranging a marriage between an underage girl and an older man who was already married. The court put out an arrest warrant. Unfortunately, when authorities went looking, Warren was nowhere to be found in Arizona. They believed he was holed up at YFC Ranch in Texas. Soon, it wasn't just the state of Arizona who wanted to find him. In April 2006, Warren was charged in Utah as an accomplice to rape. This time, the authorities based the indictment on an arranged marriage with a 14-year-old girl who'd come forward. Thanks to his arrest warrants in two states, the FBI put Warren on its list of their most wanted fugitives. He immediately landed near the top of the pile. On the FBI's top 10 poster, Warren Jeffs appeared right next to Osama bin Laden and Whitey Bulger. Authorities believed Warren was still somewhere in Texas, but they were wrong. He was on the move. This time, Warren couldn't bring his entire church with him. So he took his favorite wife, Naomi Jessup, and hopped on his Harley touring motorcycle. He set off on a road trip of his own, but his only aim was staying ahead of the law. 
Coming up, Warren Jeffs goes on the run with an unlucky stop in Las Vegas. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker. The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 2006, 50-year-old FLDS prophet Warren Jeffs was a wanted man. He'd been charged as an accomplice to rape in Utah. He was officially on the FBI's most wanted list with authorities offering a $500,000 reward for his arrest. But while law enforcement searched the towns of Hilldale and Colorado City, along with the huge YFZ ranch in Texas, Warren made his way across the Midwest on a motorcycle. He stayed on the run for nearly a year, using the bountiful FLDS treasure he controlled to finance his flight. He stayed mobile thanks to help from two of his brothers, Seth and Isaac. They acted as couriers, bodyguards, and drivers. They took turns meeting him on the road to resupply and occasionally travel with him. Warren also had one of his wives along for the ride, Naomi Jessup. He told her their trip was an extended vacation, even going so far as to have their photo taken at numerous landmarks, including the Gateway Arch in St. Louis. He kept her in the dark about his true goal, which was to stay a step ahead of the authorities. But there had already been a few close calls. Nine months earlier, police in Colorado stopped Seth and searched his car. In it, they found over $140,000 in cash, multiple prepaid cell phones, and hundreds of handwritten letters to Warren from his followers. The authorities arrested Seth and charged him with abetting a criminal. But while he admitted his identity and the purpose of his trip, Seth refused to tell the police where Warren was. It was possible he didn't even know. The prepaid phones allowed Warren to make untraceable calls to tell his brothers where to meet. It was an effective strategy, and it kept the police chasing false leads for months. But Warren's luck finally ran out on August 28, 2006. Outside of Las Vegas, a Nevada state trooper pulled over a red Cadillac Escalade with a temporary license plate. Isaac Jeffs was behind the wheel. It seemed like a routine traffic stop, until the officer noticed who was in the back seat. It was Warren and Naomi. Thanks to the FBI's most wanted list, the trooper recognized Warren and placed him under arrest. During a search of the car, the trooper found over $50,000 in cash, three wigs, and 15 cell phones. Authorities extradited Warren to a jail in Utah, where he awaited trial. Due to his notoriety, he was held in solitary confinement. Still, he managed to continue running his church from behind bars through letters and phone calls. 
By that point, he'd stayed away from Colorado City and Hilldale for most of the past 18 months, so his absence wasn't alarming. Because of their isolation, most FLDS members knew little of the charges being brought against him. Any information that did get through was ignored, disbelieved, or simply explained away as God's plan for their profit. But their profit was only human, and it didn't take long for the solitude to weigh on Warren's mental health. In prison, he was no longer the singular authority over anything in his life, and he knew his days were numbered. In January 2007, five months after his arrest, Warren recorded an apocalyptic vision he had about the future of FLDS. In a handwritten journal, he claimed that because of his arrest, the world would end. His self-described fantasies became increasingly violent. He hurled himself against the walls of his cell, banging his head on the concrete. He began a fast, refusing all food or water. Sores developed on his knees from endless hours in prayer. On January 25th, one of his brothers came to visit him, and Warren tearfully confessed, I am not the prophet. I never was the prophet, and I've been deceived by the powers of evil. Farewell forever. Three days later, Warren tried to take his own life in his jail cell. He survived and was placed under 24-hour watch. When these stories emerged from the prison, the FLDS members back in Hilldale and Colorado City refused to believe them. Many claimed it was all just a test of their church. They were confident that their prophet would be home soon. But they were wrong. On September 25, 2007, Warren Jeffs was convicted of two counts of rape by accomplice and sentenced to 10 years to life in prison. In 2011, he was further sentenced to life in prison for the sexual assault of a child under the age of 14. He got an additional 20 years for the sexual assault of a child under the age of 17. His terrible reign over the FLDS was finished. With Warren's fall, the church fell into turmoil. There was nobody to replace him. And to make matters worse for church members, local, state, and federal authorities were conducting civil investigations. The secular world was pouring into the towns, prying into their history and lifestyle. The faithful members were unprepared for the onslaught of media and outsiders, but they quickly put up defenses. The number of walls, fences, and no trespassing signs increased. If anyone with a camera came by, FLDS members ducked into their homes. Those that did talk to the media often used aliases and gave simple, hollow statements. Many said that their beliefs were unchanged and that they still saw Warren as their leader. To them, his crimes didn't matter, or they simply weren't considered crimes at all. One woman, who called herself Kathy, even said, He is a perfectly priestly man. He is a man of God, and we will always love him. Once a prophet, always a prophet. While many FLDS members tried to continue living as they always had, the increased attention revealed the full consequences of Warren's debased philosophies. For example, thanks to the intermarriage of family members over decades of polygamy, many children were born with severe physical and mental disabilities. This was due to a rare disorder called fumarase deficiency. In 1990, a doctor diagnosed an FLDS child with the disorder, making him just the 14th case ever discovered. The chances of finding a case were near 1 in 400 million. Yet when doctors looked into the family's medical history, they found eight other FLDS children who also had the condition. 
past polygamy still increases the chances of fumarase deficiencies in FLDS children. As doctors and investigators dug deeper, droves of excommunicated FLDS members came to reclaim their homes and rejoin their families, too. Sadly, they discovered one final ongoing tragedy caused by Warren Jeffs. The United Effort Trust Fund still owned their homes, and it was still locked up by government control. Over his years as the prophet, Warren had modified the trust documentation to give him unilateral control. Essentially, he used the trust as his own personal bank account, both on the run and as the church's day-to-day leader. With him in prison, the trust was permanently in the hands of the state, which opened up many properties to new buyers through auction. The government also seized the YFZ ranch in Texas and most of Warren Jeff's properties in other states. Several businesses in Hilldale and Colorado City, which were implicated in Jeff's fraud and criminal activities, were brought under state control or sold off. Other buildings in the former FLDS towns are in limbo, as a battle over the real estate rages in the courts. On one side, the members of the FLDS try to navigate a secular legal system they never learned about. On the other side, private individuals seek to buy up FLDS land, even if that means evicting families. And the uncertainty continues to this day. If you drive down the streets of these towns, you'll find them lined with empty houses and other abandoned buildings, faint memories of the bustling population that once lived here. The remaining residents still struggle to make ends meet. There aren't many jobs or businesses, and many residents have to travel long distances for work. Meanwhile, over in Hilldale, there's little more than a gas station, a small restaurant, and America's most wanted bed and breakfast. If you ever find yourself in Hilldale, you may choose to stay in this peculiar hotel. It's located in Warren's former 14-bedroom mansion, and it's mostly unchanged. You can stride along the blue carpet hand-picked by Warren himself. Enjoy your stay and keep sweet. With the red desert dust still fresh in our tires, we continue west toward the setting sun and our final stop. We're ending our time on the road in the bustling metropolis of Los Angeles, California. There, a mystical health food commune called the Source Family once left its mark. Thanks again for tuning into this special episode of Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with the fourth stop of our summer road trip. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Cults was written by Andrew Messer, edited by Tyler Walker and Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Catherine Barner, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. Cult stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Listeners, remember to visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale today, and I can't wait for you to dive in. 
Nexium, the Branch Davidians, Heaven's Gate, and more, Cults takes you beyond the headlines for an intimate look at the sordid beginnings and deadly ends of the most radical groups in history, details never heard on our show before. If you love our cult series or any of our true crime podcasts, this book is for you. Without your loyalty and support, none of this would be possible, so we truly hope you enjoy. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale and ready to read right now. Order today at parcast.com slash cults. Cults. 